um, in different ways. And this morning, I have been given the privilege of proclaiming God's word to you, and I am excited to do so, grateful to be here. And this morning is a particularly special day for me, as it marks nearly a year that I have been here amongst you as a pastor. And um, it has been a great joy to get to know many of you and to see God's work in many of your lives as individuals, as families, and together us as Maranatha, as the church. It has been a great joy. And Kate and I are so grateful to be a part of this church family now. Today, I will be talking about stepping into the promises of God and looking at the book of Joshua and the day that the river stood still. The book of Joshua is part two of God's great work of redemption in the Old Testament. And in part one, books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, God powerfully rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and established a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. During that time, God called Moses to lead his people, but the text makes very clear that God is the hero of the story. And in part two, the book of Joshua, God is shown as divine warrior, bringing his people into the land that he had promised to give them and giving them rest from their enemies. And during this time, God calls Joshua to lead his people. But again, the text makes very clear that God, not Joshua, is the hero of the story. So this morning we have the children with us, family, start of family celebration summer. All right, yeah. So kids, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when uh, you got to pretend that you were the Israelites? Were any of you here for that? Yeah. Pastor Tony led you throughout the sanctuary and explained how God had delivered you from the Egyptians by opening up the Red Sea and how uh, God led you through the wilderness and provided food. We learned that God brought his people into the wilderness in order to prepare them to enter and occupy the promised land. And he was teaching them that he is a good, powerful, and faithful God and that they were learning to fear, trust, and serve God alone. Today we'll see how God brought his people into the promised land by crossing the Jordan River. But before we do so, let's go to, at, to God and ask him for his work in our hearts. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who communicates to us. We ask that you would help us to quiet our busy minds this morning so that we might hear you. Speak to us through your word, Lord, we ask, so that we might know you more fully and learn to walk with you more closely. We desire you to have your way in our hearts and in our lives. So take this message, Lord, and cause it to be fruitful in our lives for the sake of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Joshua opens with God speaking first. He says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give them, 
to the Israelites. As you can see from this graphic, Joshua is the new Moses. And like Moses, he tells the Israelites to obey God's commands and he sends spies into the land. We're picking up the story in chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua today. And through this sermon, I hope that you will be able to see that God is the hero of this story because he demonstrates his great faithfulness and his awe-inspiring power as he leads his people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Understanding the promises God made to his people and what the Ark of the Covenant represented and the time of the year when the crossing occurred will help us to understand more fully the significance of what God did and why memorial stones were set up to teach future generations. So, let's jump in. Crossing over the Jordan was a significant and momentous milestone for the Israelites. It was anticipated for 700 years uh, before Joshua's time. God had said to Abraham, this is the everlasting covenant I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. And it will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. At the beginning of chapter 3, God calls his people to follow his lead in order to enter the promised land. God instructed Joshua, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, that's about half a mile, between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow... The Lord will do amazing things among you. So why did God tell his people to follow the Ark of the Covenant? Well, I'm glad that you asked. A little background explanation will help us understand the significance of that. After God delivered his people from Egypt, he established a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, which we call the Mosaic Covenant. A covenant is an unchangeable agreement initiated by God that specifies to his people the conditions of being in relationship with him. From the time of the Garden of Eden, we see that God desires to dwell amongst his people, to be with them, and for them to know that he alone is God. But right from the start, we also see that our sin separates us from God and that a life must be given in order for that separation to be reconciled. One of the primary purposes of the Mosaic Covenant was to teach God's people that he is holy, completely set apart from all that is evil, and that it is only through the death of a life given in sacrifice that it is possible for God's people to be in his presence. At Mount Sinai, God gave instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, in which God chose to manifest his presence amongst his people. God also instructed his people to build a wooden chest overlaid with gold to hold the Ten Commandments, which was a summary of the Mosaic Covenant. 
Now, on the top of this ark, between the two cherubim, or the angels, was the mercy seat, or the atonement cover, that would serve as God's throne on earth. The ark symbolized God's presence amongst his people. And the ark of the covenant was kept in the most holy place, in the tent of meeting, as you can see here. Only the high priest was permitted to enter that section of the tent, and only on one particular day of each year, the Day of Atonement. So I think you're getting the picture. The ark was extraordinarily sacred and symbolized God's holy presence amongst his people. But the ark was not magical, though. It was not equal to God, nor did it contain God. God was using something tangible to teach his people about his holiness and how to walk with him, although he is spirit and unseen. The words for crossing over and for ark are each used 20 times in these two chapters alone. And from this, it is very clear that God himself, whose presence amongst his people was represented by the ark, was personally leading his people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. He reassured them that they will know which way to go as they followed the ark as it was carried by the priests. So, what can we learn from this part of the passage? Well, it shows us a couple things. First, that God is the hero of this story. Second, that God is trustworthy. He demonstrated his faithfulness in fulfilling his promise to Abraham and his descendants. And third, God wants to be with his people and give them what is good. He manifests his presence amongst the Israelites and led them into a land of abundance. Continuing on in verses 13 to 17, we learn how this long-anticipated and significant crossing would happen. So follow along with me. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. God had told Joshua that he would do a great miracle in order to lead his people into the promised land. He would cause the Jordan River to stop flowing so that the people could cross over, much as he had parted the Red Sea so that the people could cross over on dry ground. And that is exactly what happened. The Word of God tells us that as the priests took that step of faith into the river, the waters upstream stopped flowing, 
and eventually they stood in the middle of a dry riverbed as the whole nation crossed over. In order to understand the significance of this miracle, it's helpful to have a little geography lesson. So, kids and adults, let me paint you a little picture of what this mighty river was like. The river was in flood stage as the snow melted and the spring rains fell. And yeah, believe it or not, it actually does snow in Israel. Normally, the river is 3 to 10 feet deep and about 100 feet wide. But during flood stage, like this, it becomes 10 to 12 feet deep and over a mile in width where the Israelites crossed. So watching this video of the Jordan River here during flood stage will give us a little idea of what it would have been like to attempt to cross. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but that's not a river I want to attempt to cross on my own. <laughs> that would be perilous. Can you imagine trying to do that? I mean, really only a fool would try to do that, right? Well, let me tell you a little story about a close encounter I had with a river at flood stage. When I was salmon fishing in Alaska, I was using waders in a river much like the one in that video. And as I was trying to cross to the other side, I nearly got swept away as my waders filled with water. And um, I will never forget that frightening experience of being confronted with the power of a river at flood stage. Thank God that he saved me despite my foolishness. Now think back to that video and imagine the miracle that God did in stopping the flow of a river like that. Because of what God did, even the elderly, the sick, and the parents carrying infants could cross on dry ground. It was a great miracle indeed. Naturally, we question how God could make that happen. It was so out of the ordinary. The Word of God tells us that the waters backed up at a place called Adam, which is 18 miles north of the crossing. Throughout history, there have been at least four documented earthquakes that have caused landslides that have stopped the flow of the Jordan River entirely for anywhere from 10 to 48 hours. And the most recent time that that happened was less than 100 years ago. Although there's no way of knowing with certainty the exact means that God may have used to stop the river, we can confidently trust that it was his powerful hand alone that caused it to happen. The miracle of the crossing of the Jordan was similar to the crossing of the Red Sea, not only because God led his people across on dry ground, but also because it occurred at precisely the same time of year. Exodus tells the story of how God liberated his people from slavery by bringing plagues on the Egyptians that culminated in the death of the firstborn of every family. God spared or passed over every Israelite home which had the blood of a sacrificial lamb 
smeared on the doorpost. At that time, God also gave his people instructions to establish an annual festival to commemorate how he had passed over the Israelite homes and delivered his people from the Egyptians. That memorial festival was so significant that God reordered their entire calendar so that the Passover would occur during the first month of the year. And it's no coincidence that God led his people across the Jordan River during the very first month of the year. In fact, Joshua chapter 5 describes how the Israelites celebrated the Passover for the first time in the Promised Land immediately after crossing over. So, both the time of the year and the condition of the river help us to see that the Jordan, crossing the Jordan was no less miraculous than crossing the Red Sea had been. God was once again leading his people with supernatural power in his sovereign timing so that his people would trust, obey, and worship him alone. So what can we learn from this section of the passage? Well, again, we see that God is the hero of the story. He demonstrated his awe-inspiring power by stopping the river so that his people could stop, could cross on dry ground. Secondly, we see that we must step out in faith in order to enter God's promises. It was only as the priests actually stepped into the river that God caused the waters upstream to stop. In order to enter the promised land, Joshua, the priests, and all the people had to trust in God's power and faithfulness. We can learn from the pattern of their example, too. God made a promise they stepped out in faith. God made the river stand still, and they entered into what God had promised. Likewise, for us, we must put our faith in God alone to bring about that which he has promised. And third, we can learn that God is able to take care of us. I once heard someone preach something that has stuck with me a long time. He said, if God can take care of that, surely he is able to take care of this. As we look at the wonders of God, whether it be a massive mountain or a miracle like the crossing of the Jordan, we can confidently say, if God can do that, surely he can take care of this. And that's good news for us. God is able to take care of us in whatever situation we may face. So we have just heard the miraculous way God personally led his people into the promised land. Now as we turn to chapter 4, we will hear how God instructs his people to commemorate this long-anticipated and significant event. So read along with me, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off 
These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. I'm skipping down to verse 18. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so you might always fear the Lord your God. In these passages, we have the climactic end of the narrative. The entire nation had crossed over on dry ground, and as soon as the priests stepped out into the river, it began flowing at flood stage again. The way this is described reminds the reader of the magnitude of the problem that had confronted Israel. Although God had commanded them to enter and occupy the promised land, he had also led them smack dab into a barrier that prevented them from doing so. It was only through faith and obedience that the Israelites could enter the promised land. As God's people trusted and obeyed his instructions, he once again demonstrated his faithfulness and amazing power to his people and to the nations around them. As miraculous as this crossing was, God knew that his people would soon forget what he had done. So in his wisdom and foresight, he instructed them to take stones from the riverbed and set up a memorial to what he had done. These 12 stones was, were to serve as a sign reminding the Israelites of what God had done. We've seen this warning not to forget before. Last summer, we looked at Deuteronomy 6 and how God warned his people not to forget when they entered the promised land and were living in prosperity. Do you remember last summer when we had a visit from a time-traveling Israelite and he happened to find one of these uh, good and plenty in the stores? Well, um, he took this back with him as a way to remind the people that they must not forget God, their Savior, when they would be living the good life in the land of plenty. And now we've come full circle. The Israelites have entered the promised land, and God is showing them how to set up a memorial so that they don't forget the amazing miracles that he had done. So what is a memorial, and why do we have them? The dictionary defines a memorial as something that keeps remembrance alive, such as a monument or a building erected in remembrance of a person, or something that commemorates, such as a speech or a ceremony. So essentially, a memorial is something 
that reminds us of something significant. Memorials can be physical objects like stones taken from the Jordan River or like the Vietnam War Memorial. Or they can be events like the Passover meal or a funeral service honoring someone who has died. As this passage says, memorials are a sign in our midst, reminding us of what God has done. And memorials are effective teaching tools. Indeed, verse 22 literally reads that the memorial stones would cause their children to know the wonders that God had done. The location of the memorial commemorating the crossing of the Jordan was strategic. Later in Israel's history, when families would travel to Jerusalem for the annual religious festivals at the temple, children would see the stone monument at Gilgal and in their curiosity, ask their parents what it meant. The parents would then tell their children about the meaning of the memorial stones that had been taken from the Jordan. They would tell their children about the faithfulness of God and how he kept his promise to Abraham and his descendants. That testimony that God is trustworthy would inspire the next generation to also put their faith in God alone. We too can learn from this memorial to God's faithfulness. One commentator expressed this well. He said that God was, is, and always will be faithful. And God's people were, are, and always will be invited to respond in trust and obedience. When the children asked, what do these stones mean? The parents would also tell them about the power of God. They would tell about how he controls everything in creation, including the mighty waters of the rivers and the seas. And verse 24 specifies two purposes of this memorial. One, so that the Israelites might always fear the Lord. And two, so that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful. You see, God was demonstrating his awe-inspiring power not just to the Israelites, but to all the nations of the world. Teaching children about what God has done is an important aspect of living out our faith at home. And for those of us who are parents, we are called to tell our children about the character and the works of God. Parents are very familiar with the question, why? And I encourage you to not stifle your children's curiosity, even when they repeatedly ask you, why, 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 why? But take it as an opportunity to teach them about God. And this principle doesn't just apply to parents. Every person in this church is called to tell others about God, regardless of whether you have children of your own or no matter what age you are. God has given you opportunities to influence others. So be intentional to live in such a way that all the peoples of the earth, of all ages, will come to see God's awe-inspiring works and his great faithfulness. Memorials are a familiar and common thing, and tomorrow as a nation we will celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day was first widely observed in 1868, a long time ago, 
at Arlington National Cemetery after the Civil War. Memorial Day was established as a day to honor and remember those who have died in service to our country. It is a time for both celebration and a time for grief. Across America tomorrow, flags will be raised, guns will be fired, and people will attend parades and visit grave sites. But Memorial Day is also the unofficial start of summer. And for many of us, the day will come and go without any of those commemorative events. In our safety and prosperity, it is all too easy to forget the cost of freedom and the sacrifices that have been made. My intention here is not to lay a guilt trip on any of us, but rather to illustrate a point. In order for memorials to serve their purpose, we must be intentional to remember the significance behind them. Without intentionality, memorials will decline to mere rituals and objects devoid of meaning. Sadly, many memorials established to commemorate godly people and events have gradually been overtaken by the world and given different meaning. St. Patrick's Day comes to mind. Originally established to commemorate a former slave who returned to the land of his captors in order to share the gospel, it has become a worldly celebration of drunkenness. Richard Foster, a well-known Christian author, says that we must be careful to avoid celebrating nothing. In other words, we must be intentional in our celebration of memorials so that they actually continue to cause us to remember what they originally stood for. So, as Americans, let us be intentional in remembering the me meaning of Memorial Day as we celebrate tomorrow. I encourage you to take some time to visit Veterans Park and think about the sacrifices soldiers made. Talk to your children about the reality and the cost of war and the virtue of sacrificial service. Learn about your family's history, especially those who have served in the military. Many living veterans often feel forgotten. Consider visiting a veteran and telling them how much you appreciate their service to our country. During the first celebration of Memorial Day, President James Garfield said of the soldiers that it was, quote, for the love of country that they accepted death. In a similar way, the writer of Hebrews said that it was because of the joy awaiting him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus fulfilled the Passover festival by laying down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his sacrificial death on the cross. So as Christians, let us be intentional in remembering what God has done. Each time we participate in communion, let us continue to remember how Jesus redeemed us. Indeed, the table we use here to serve the elements reminds us that communion is done in or as a remembrance. Likewise, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, let us be intentional to teach our children the rich meaning behind the symbols and, and customs that we as Christians have. 
We have so much more to remember, celebrate, and pass on to the next generation than the world does. Let us be intentional so that our memorials continue to remind us of what God has done. So in closing this morning, I want to leave you with two questions. First, what has God done in your life that you want to remember? Think of times that he has revealed himself to you more fully or maybe rescued you from a dangerous situation or how he has provided for you in a significant way. So what has God done in your life that you want to remember? And secondly, what physical symbols, activities, or events could you establish as memorials to remind you and those who follow your spiritual leadership of those significant things? So I leave you with that encouragement and challenge as you reflect on what it means to step into the promises of God and consider the day that the river stood still.